going back to the theme of strong community, I, I think there's a lot to be said about housing people near their jobs and, and, and that creates community. If people are parachuting in from someplace else, it's hard to really build a community. Howdy, howdy, my strong friends. Welcome to the Strong Society podcast. I am Nate Kadlicek, and I'll be your guide through this podcast where I interview local and global leaders in health, fitness, business, and government who are working on solving the most pressing health and social issues threatening the world today. Our special guest today is Katie Castagna, President and CEO of United Way Monterey, where she has served for almost six years. She has been a part of the organization, though, for nearly 17 years. United Way advances the common good in communities across the world, and their focus is on education, income, and health, the building blocks for a good quality of life. What a great interview this was. Um, I, I didn't realize how impactful and forward-thinking Katie and United Way is and um, really how they, they try to address upstream systemic issues and downstream issues all at the same time. That's, that's pretty hard to do. We talk about the importance of early education, affordable housing, social engagement, and the importance on health and much more. Please enjoy this conversation with Katie Castagna. Cool, cool. Well, th- thanks again for being here. I mean, it's uh, it's an honor to to have you on, Katie, and I'm looking forward to learning more about your values and what you've done with United Way in in Monterey. Okay. So I thought that we would start. I was I was looking at your your LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. and I saw that you were at Brown and then UCLA, and then I saw that you were at Community, you were a community impact director, which I thought was really cool. And you've been at United Way for, I think, is it say is sixteen years? Is that accurate? Yep. Or sixteen yep. and a half? Cool, cool. So can you can you tell me kind of your journey of how you got to your your current position at United Way? Sure. Trying to spare you the boring details of a life history, but I actually I find my career path quite interesting. Because I started out, of course, not knowing what I wanted to do. As a, as a teenager, I did a lot of community volunteer work in college, was very involved in, in the community outreach organization and did more, more volunteer work in really in mental health settings. And that was my first interest. I'm looking at group homes and actually volunteered in a locked ward in the state mental institution and really liked the idea of of helping people and providing, in that case, I wasn't a clinician, but providing some sort of contact to the, the healthy and normal world and support and caring to people that were vulnerable for various reasons, whether they were runaway youth or were dealing with mental illness. But I knew that as I graduated from college, I didn't see that there's any full-time volunteer work that would sustain me career-wise. But really, that's when I realized that there is a career path within the, the nonprofit sector to, to do this kind of work full-time to support the kinds of missions that I had been interested in as a volunteer, but to do it from a professional standpoint. So I had the opportunity in my first job to, to work in a direct service agency that was dealing with child abuse and really learn about how to 
support professional services to people in need, and whether that is through coordinating volunteers, raising funds, writing grants, and helping to organize the services and and activities of, of a particular agency. So loved that direct service, knowing I'm helping people that have had a really rough break in life. And by creating, whether it was an after school program or, you know, a shopping activity for kids in need when, when their own families couldn't provide for them at Christmas, that kind of thing. And I loved that, but I really wanted to go upstream and figure out how do you have a bigger impact and not just help the one family or the one group of people that are served by an agency, but how do you have a broader impact on improving lives? So that kind of started my journey into looking more at the business side of the nonprofit sector and understanding how organizations are structured to make a difference and how policy is made to direct support and resources where it's most needed. So I was the last person to find myself going to business school. I thought, you know, I had been this uh, nonprofit warrior and uh, really had no interest in business per se, but realized that to be effective in in social change and, and making a difference that you need to really understand the basics of business. So that was one surprise in my life is finding myself in a sea of, of, of MBA students and uh, being a little bit lonely because there weren't many of us interested in the nonprofit sector. But it was a really good decision and certainly built my respect for my business colleagues, but really un- and confidence in knowing that you need to have the fundamentals of, the fi- of understanding finance if you're really going to run a strong organization, regardless of what sector you're in. So I think that has served me well continuing to, you know, move upstream. And then career-wise, really looking at organizations and and wanting to go back into the nonprofit sector, which I did, but which organizations are are looking at, at our community from a more upstream point of view. And that's where United Way comes in. And what I like about United Way is that we are looking at the entire community and supporting really the infrastructure for how we how we improve lives and that is building connections between business philanthropy government and raising up the voice of the people who need help and making those connections so that we can be more effective in serving our community so that's just kind of a high level of, of my journey and why wanting to help people on a larger scale brought me into more of a business perspective or certainly in my own training, getting an MBA. And, and the role that United Way plays, there are so many wonderful direct service organizations that are doing amazing work. For me personally, I, I'm excited about being that connector and helping to leverage those individual direct services to really be more holistic or more effective overall because people need more than one service. Mm-hmm. So how can we make sure that we're all working together as effectively as possible? And I think that's for that for me that's the 
attraction of working with United Way and the role that we play here in Monterey County. Yeah, that's awesome. You, you use the word uh, upstream a couple times, and it's funny. I had written that in my notes, like because I'm I'm also very interested in how how do we you know not only improve people on a one to one level, kind of like what you were doing in the beginning, but then like okay, well how we can do as much one to one as we want, but it might not seem to make a dent in kind of the issues that we're seeing. So how do we go from one to many? Usually, like you said, that is through upstream effects of combining business and philanthropy, other nonprofit organizations with boots on the ground, like grassroots type stuff. And yeah, that's, that's awesome. So and I'm so happy to hear that there are people doing this. <laughs> it, se- it seems there's just so much, especially now and, and last year, so much unrest, right? I mean, you only hear the more negative side of things. But I mean, there are so many great things that United Way is doing and other um, businesses to really support people. So I guess stemming off of the combination of government, philanthropy, and business, what what have you found is one of the larger challenges with bringing everyone together in that way? Because it seems like there's a lot of moving parts with that. Hmm. Well, I think for one thing, you need to be clear about what the vision is. And we uh, don't always have a common vision, but really, really try to seek that common ground as far as values and vision for what kind of community we want to, to be in. And then recognize the complexity of multiple perspectives feeding into that vision. I think one of the interesting things that is happening currently or or that has become a great focus is the idea of community engagement and ensuring that really from an equity lens that you are including everybody creating solutions. And that it's not just a top-down kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So really wrapping your brain around what does that mean and how do you get there is has been a challenge for me personally because I want to be conscious of my own blind spot. What I think might be inclusive may not. You know, people have barriers, whether it's language or education or other kinds of access to really engaging in decision making. And creating their own voice. So while on one hand, I think, you know, part of what we do is advocate for those who who don't have a voice. I think a challenge is how do you make sure you're really authentic and that your process is including those voices as well, or that you are creating platforms for people to use their own voices. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, a, a challenge, but what's been exciting about this work, um, and I think you know, for our, all of us as a society, in the in recent months, spending a lot more time thinking about racial equity and what does that mean, and the sort of the systemic racism and the the barriers that sometimes we're not even aware of that we have created and lived with. I think those are challenges that I'm, you know, I'm excited to see kind of an awakening and a growing understanding and an eagerness to learn. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. know all the answers, but I think 
I'm certainly seeing amongst my peers, you know, a, ver- a real interest in in learning and, and growing in that area. You know, it's definitely been brought to the the forefront in the past past months and a year, and it seems, yeah, we have these unknown unknowns, right? Where you have plenty of experience in education, and it can be really easy for a leader like yourself to fall into the trap of like, well, I know, I know what to do. I've been here before, but I don't need, but it seems like you've taken that in a different direction of, I have these blind spots. There are people like we need to include everybody in the decision-making process to make sure that it's, it's equitable, as you say, how have you always been that way? Because for me, like I used to have a, a, a pretty large ego <laughs> and I had to be humbled a few times <laughs> uh, and I'm continually humbled. But I'm just wondering, like, have you always kind of been that way where you were looking for multiple perspectives or was it a, a process that developed over time? Well, it's interesting you mentioned humble because I think humility is a really important value and perspective, you know, to just always remember your own, your your own humility in the face of other people's experience that you don't know what, what somebody else's experience. I will say my undergraduate concentration was in anthropology. And so as an anthropologist, I mean, you really do focus on the lens of multiple perspectives when you look at culture and that I was focused on cultural anthropology. So along the way, people ask, well, what, why would you study anthropology or what is, you know, too bad you're not an anthropologist, but in some ways I feel that I am <laughs> and that that training has served me well, as far as like really being interested in the nuances of different perspectives and, and respecting different cultures. So, so I don't want to say, oh, I've always been humble and understood this, this uh, need an equitable approach, but it certainly has been a, an interest of mine and something that I've had the really the pleasure of pursuing in the in the work that I do professionally. But it's it's definitely, I think, a growing appreciation of of uh, the value and need for grassroots sort of engagement and respect for the more grassroots boots on the ground approach and how you ideally would marry that with, you know, sort of public policy coming down from the top, but you can't do one without the other. Sure. Cultural, so cultural anthropology, that's interesting. Have you, have you read the book Sapiens by chance? No, but my son and husband have, they've been talking about it. Yeah, I was going to ask what you, what you, what you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, no, I'll, I'll move it up my list. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting book. I, I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts on it once you get a chance. There's so many like book recommendations out there now. I, I probably have like eight that I've started that <laughs> have not been finished yet. So you got into cultural anthrop- anthropology and what like preceding that. I know you talked about doing some service opportunities. I don't know if that was after or during your time at UCLA or was that was that before? Like, what did, what did the earlier years look like prior to like going into cultural anthropology? Like, how did you make, 
How'd you make that decision? I just, you know, from an academic standpoint, that's what I was really interested in. I had uh, studied Spanish, you know, from seventh grade on, like a lot of folks do. And I, but I realized to really speak it fluently, I needed to go live someplace and immerse myself in a Spanish speaking country. So I, I spent a semester in Bogota, Colombia, my junior cool. year and nice. studied anthropology there and, and definitely improved my Spanish skills, which have since gotten rusty, but are, have been so valuable. And I'm still taking calls at United Way in Spanish. And it, you know, kind of going back to that humility, being able to at least be there for a, a young man called in Spanish the other day that I, the call got transferred to me and he was, you know, he was distraught because he had lost his mother to COVID and needed some mental health supports. And while United Way has, that's what our 211 information and referral service line is for to help people get, get services, find out who do you call for that when you need a bereavement group. But he, for some reason, ended up calling us directly. And while I told him about 211, I also was able to, you know, personally give him a, a referral and just be there for him. And so for me, that's humbling knowing, you know, that there's pain in our community and that, you know, what kinds of things people need help finding. And, and I think I've drifted from your original question of <laughs> what brought me into cultural anthropology, but it's, you know, just trying, being intrigued by people and their different experiences. And for example, I did a study on Hispanic immigrants to Rhode Island was my senior thesis. And I interviewed folks who had come from different, different countries. Um, in, in Rhode Island, it was, it was Colombia and Dominican Republic primarily where people had immigrated from. And so really digging into their identities as Latinos or Hispanics in Rhode Island in the 80s. And so that kind of thing just fascinates me because people see it differently, you know, as far as what your own identity is and how then others see you. So those are just some of the aspects of of anthropology that that attracted me. And, And then, like I said, woven throughout was an interest in, did tutoring and, and, uh, I did the mental institution volunteering and volunteering at a run at a couple different runaway youth shelters and just really being intrigued by opportunities to serve and then knowing that there's you know larger systems in place that there but for the grace of God go I and yeah. just feeling like I I have so much privilege and wanting to be a contributing member of of our community yeah and were your were your parents involved in anything like that as well? Yes, my my mother especially. My my dad was a prominent doctor in the community and so people have high regard for him and I was always running into people who said, "Oh, he did, you know, he saved my mother's life and so forth." But my my mom was a really a trailblazing community volunteer. It was involved in lots of different organizations from the YWCA to the, to the PTA, but her, she, she really took on an interesting role in the eighties running a domestic violence organization, a prevention organization. 
And it was back in the day and I saw it when it was still almost kind of snickered at, like, you know, you present to a group of men and they'd say, oh, well, you know, the wife just doesn't know her place. And so really seeing that, that perception shift, because that was right as communities really started to take domestic violence more seriously. So my mom as a first a community volunteer and then really became a professional within the nonprofit arena. This is in Southern California. And then also she, and then she moved into a role in philanthropy with a a private family foundation. So I, I very much have followed in her footsteps and she continues to be a great mentor to me today. Wow. That's, that's uh, amazing to hear. I always love to hear the, the backstory of how people got into things and, you know, back, yeah, back in the eighties. I mean, that definitely a trailblazer. I mean, that's, yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, she, she was. And in fact, I, she even, um, we did as, as part of the education, and this was really raising awareness about domestic violence and alternatives for, for people experiencing that. I, I also did some theater in high school. And so we had a, um, a program where we would do essentially role playing of family drama and then like to sort of communicate how everybody can relate to tensions in families. But mm-hmm. in some cases, it, it, you know, goes in the wrong direction and it, it, to a, a negative result. Anyway, she had me and my, my friends do these role play dramas to community groups, rotary clubs and, and so forth. So. Anyway, that was another kind of a tie-in of my theater interest with community awareness raising. And, and I'm thinking my mom was pretty, pretty, pretty brave to be pulling me into this stuff. <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to do that with my kids. <laughs> but I'll tell you one more story about her. And this is very late breaking and why she, she's a, a rock star, but she continues to trailblaze. So she's 80 years old now and lives in Monterey and healthy and very engaged. She's a, a had been a, a volunteer at CHOMP until the pandemic, and they said all the volunteers stay away until Friday when they had a, a vaccine clinic and they needed help desperately. So she, unvaccinated, goes out to help at the vaccine clinic and was so excited to do it and so happy. And I was so nervous. That was before she got her own vaccine. So anyway, you can see she's been an inspiration to me. Wow. She's an inspiration to me. I mean, <laughs> that that's amazing. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's just so, so important to, and as you know, and as, as she knows to just stay engaged, you know, post, you know, there, there's this whole, I forget when it started, but you know, the whole 65 years old retirement age, like just retire and go live in like a resort somewhere. And I think what we're realizing now is that and I see this, I see a lot of people who are 65 and older in, in my business. The people who stay engaged in the community activities and in social life and just really being of service, they tend to just thrive. Thrive. Yeah. yeah. Thrive. So that's that that's amazing. I, I love hearing stories like that. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's awesome. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about just the kind of top-down versus bottom-up approach or getting that equity with decision-making processes. 
I've been thinking a lot about this with just the high amounts of poverty and how that has uh, very uh, negative effects on just health outcomes. And just if you look at the social determinants of health, poverty being a, you know, as maybe a root cause, maybe not a root cause. So I'm always trying to understand this a little bit better, but how do we, you know, how do we, this is, sorry, this is a big question, but how do we address that issue? from a, I guess, multifactorial approach of how do we really get people more opportunity when there is seemingly much less? You know, mm-hmm. if you have a, if you have a, a person who grows up in a, a suburban neighborhood with, you know, two parents, they're not really hurting for money versus the person who's raised a single parent and goes to a school that has like a third of the funding. You know, how do we how do we remedy that? What are, what are some solutions that, that come to mind when you think of that? I know that's a huge question. Yeah, it's huge. You hit on a big one, and that is, I think, school funding and equity in education and really drilling into how our school systems are, are designed. You see that, that they're not all providing the same level of education and resources. and the disparity in funding between school districts is is pretty stark and and that has to do with some very complex state formulas for how schools are funded but i think there is there's also i in my opinion a lot of duplication in in our county we have a lot of school districts we have like 24 school districts for 435,000 people so I think one has to do with really digging into how our education system is organized and funded and really looking at equity and are we investing enough in education and not just K-12, but, you know, really looking at early education. And that's one of the areas that that United Way has been focusing on in recent years and really looking at how we invest in early learning and whether it's quality childcare or more accessible preschool. But recognizing that kids, you know, a lot of kids are showing up at kindergarten already behind for a lot of reasons. You know, they haven't had the social emotional experience of of being sort of acculturated in, in a school setting. They haven't had the academic supports. Perhaps their parents didn't graduate from high school. So there's not enough, not enough, you know, literacy in the household. And so looking at how, how you can really, again, going upstream, how, how you start even earlier. The first three years are, you know, so important for the growing brain, as you know. And so if we're allowing kids to be in impoverished circumstances in their earliest years, then they, you know, they're going to be behind forever. So, um, you know, how do you create and it's not it's not even necessarily the wealth gap. It's sort of how do you embrace a culture of supporting early learning at at multiple income levels? And how do you make sure that basic needs are met? So so there's the educational system and really valuing early learning for all. And then there's also in our community, the another issue that United Way is focusing on is affordable housing. We know that the, the cost of housing is 
a real problem and a real barrier for many people to have a decent quality of life. And so the the overcrowding and insufficient housing that's available negatively impacts our children as well. And so thinking about how you create more accessible and affordable housing is also part of that solution as far as sort of breaking generational poverty and making sure that you are um, developing healthy families. Yeah. Yeah. I, I worked, uh, I had firsthand experience with seeing that because I, I worked home health for about a year. So I'd go to people's homes after they were had a surgery or a fall. And I worked in a lot of different communities. So all like from Hollister to East San Jose to East Palo Alto to Palo Alto to Africa, like all over the place. So I saw the stark differences, you know, I I bet you did. I remember on a particular day, I went to this family's home and it was in East Palo Alto. And there was, uh, there were 15 people who lived there in like a three bedroom house, 15. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was, it was insane. I don't think I'd ever seen that. And then I go to Atherton to this uh, person's home and it's like a $15 million home. They've got an elevator, you know, there's four people living in like a 16 bedroom house, <laughs> you know? So like this, I, I've seen the, the differences there and it's, it's really, you know, a, a five or 10 mile difference and a huge change. So yeah, just figuring out solutions to still like, like on all wealth levels to, bring that opportunity. So what are what are some of the actionable solutions that United Way is a part of for bringing that early learning opportunity to to children? So we have a couple of different approaches um, for early care. One is supporting licensed child care and really working to expand the industry, if you will, um, the the number of slots that are available, the pipeline of people that provide early learning. So there's there's sort of the, you know, either the licensed home care provider or licensed preschools. And so we're we're advocating for more funding for for those entities. And um, we also are um, working with the informal care providers because we know the more affordable solution is that inform that you know the aunt or the neighbor who's taking in kids informally they might not be licensed and so we're providing training and um, support for those folks those informal care providers we call them family friends and neighbors we've during the pandemic we've actually been providing cash relief to those folks because as and and you would appreciate this too as uh, these are small business owners and when you think about the impact of the pandemic on their business where they're either not able to take as many kids they have higher costs for PPE and they really are are already working on a very small margin so we're we're concerned about the whole infrastructure of childcare and how we make sure these people do continue to to care for children and provide preschool and early learning. But one of the most exciting programs we have that has been in the works uh, for a couple of years, but this was the year we launched it, is we, if you've heard of the AmeriCorps program, we have established an AmeriCorps program that we call the Preschool Service Corps. 
And so we are a hub for Monterey County preschools to host an AmeriCorps member who comes in and assists in the classroom with literacy and, and tutoring. So each, each of those preschoolers that's part of this program gets extra tutoring from an AmeriCorps member while they're in school, whether it's a Head Start or a preschool. So we're partnering with preschools throughout the county to place extra support, basically like an AmeriCorps tutor for a year. So it's a great opportunity for a lot of reasons. One is we're providing extra support to those three and four-year-olds. And so again, when I talked about the, you know, the literacy supports and the need to um, create uh, more, essentially more enrichment for those kids. We're, we're providing that extra support. We're supporting the teachers, which are already, you know, they are spread very thin in their own classroom management. And then we're also building skills for the AmeriCorps members who sign up to, to volunteer for a year to serve in a preschool classroom. And so they're getting, the AmeriCorps members are getting training, they're getting a stipend, they're getting benefits and a, an educational stipend at the end of the year of service. And um, while some of them may go off into all their other careers, we're hoping that some may, you know, actually stay within the, the education sector. And um, so it's really building a pipeline of new talent as well. So that's just an example of one of the ways that we're really trying to make an impact across the whole system. Now, doing you know preschool support during a pandemic has been a challenge. Yeah. We uh, we we're at a much smaller scale than we had planned. We're ultimately, or well, it, it could grow, but the the goal for this year had been to have twenty different partners, and we had twenty classrooms lined up, but for obvious reasons, um, some of them decided not to um, resume in, in person. But we do have, we have four members, four preschool service core mem- AmeriCorps members who are serving in classrooms this year, despite the pandemic. And so they are helping, I think it's a total of about 32 kids throughout the county and with regular literacy tutoring. So that's, uh, and we're recruiting, I wanna put in a plug um, for yeah, next year. <laughs> And the ideal person, um, you know, there's a a bunch of different targets. It could be the high school graduate who hasn't decided what to do next and wants a year of service experience or somebody who who knows they want to go to college and they're taking a gap year or a new college graduate who would like a year of of experience doing this kind of service before they go on to uh, their own careers. Or it could be a retired person who, you know, to your point earlier, um, who has maybe had a successful career and wants to do something interesting in retirement. That's our um, preschool service core program. I wanted to put a plug in and show how this is one way United Way is trying to make a system-wide impact by partnering with multiple preschools and placing new talent and building new talent with education and so forth and uh, providing more support for those students. As far as, I mean, going back to your other question about, you know, how do you really walk the talk on the grassroots engagement? Um, I think it's it's really continuing to examine your systems of inclusion and looking at ways you're engaging people as a, you know, within philanthropy, funding citizen engagement kinds of activities, funding we we actually uh, United Way has made a grant to the Alice Hall School District for a new 
preschool building that they're building where we put together a coalition of private funders to, to support it. But the criteria that we attached to it was that we wanted to make sure that the parents were engaged in creating the programming at the preschool. So really trying to build in that community grassroots engagement in the design of the program. So that's one really specific way. And that that's difficult because school districts and governments are used to just, you know, having regulations and having a very top-down approach. So we really wanted to support that concept of the parent power and engagement. Um, and, and so because of the the design of the funders around that project, there is a, a parent engagement group that is is working to, uh, I guess, co-create or, or help uh, launch the mm-hmm. programmatic piece of this new preschool when it when it's built. So groundbreaking is coming up in the next few months. Wow, that's great. And that, that seems like a wonderful way to of, of that inclusion principle that you had talked about to really just foster community um, and make sure that everyone is a part of the process. I mean, it, it, it probably just that carries forward through after groundbreaking, right? And, and into um, program design and everything. So that's, that's wonderful. Well, I think it, it speaks to sustainability because, yeah. you know, people feel like they own something, they're going to, they're going to work to make it successful. Yes. And so you want to make sure that you really are engaging the, the people who have the, the interest in continuing it and seeing that it be performed with excellence. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's a similar concept to there, there are a few different initiatives in, you know, like Doctors Without Borders, I think early, and, and I could be completely wrong, you probably know way more about this, but initially we would go over there, right? And like just do procedures and then that's it, right? Or like we go over and, um, you know, build, build like people building wells, like charity water and whatnot. You'd go over, you do the work and then you'd leave. But now like you're talking about, we're finding that that just kind of puts a bandaid on the problem. You know, if you don't, if you don't actually foster like a community and self-determination and take people taking helping people like develop ownership and agency over their own situation. Um, you know, you're always just going to be putting a bandaid on it, which it, it's, inter- I feel like that's a, do you feel like that? Well, I feel like it's a universal principle. Do you, do you feel like that's kind of, that carries over into um, individual relationships as well? Just that personal agency and really taking charge. Right. And it's, I mean, it's the old, you know, you're teaching someone to fish. You don't want to just hand them the fish. Right. And so I think that is a core principle that we continue to learn and revisit. And if could, because if you really want to make a sustainable change, you know, you need to um, engender that, like you said, the, the agency, the, the ownership and, and leadership within the community. And there may be, you know, solutions that you as the outsider would never even think of. And it's, so it's very presumptuous of us to think we as outsiders uh, or as leaders have all the answers. All my best ideas are from other people. (laughs) (laughs) As I have found out. So I wanted to talk a little bit, you you mentioned affordable housing, right? And I was just reading an article uh, yesterday of how more people are leaving the state (laughs) 
(laughs) than are coming in. There's lots of businesses leaving, just lots of people are, are going for good reason, right? And I've had this thought because if you look at like the Bay Area or even Monterey County now, the uh, home prices are crazy. The rent is, you know, you know, the, the, the pace with which wages have kept up with rent is <laughs> the gap is crazy. So, and you've got people moving to like Morgan Hill and Gilroy who are now working in San Jose and vice versa. Like people are moving further and further from Monterey County to work in Monterey County. And my, I guess I wonder like what, when does the breaking point happen? Like, you know, are people going to move all the way to San Luis Obispo and then, you know, drive up to, to Monterey or like how, when we don't have people who are, you know, the person working at the gas station or housekeeper or people who are caregivers to our, our elderly population who need those services when they're priced out of the market and they have to move, like what happens? How do we solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. I, I, I think of it in, well, there's two different points I would want to make with this. I think your example of people moving further and further away is is a good one, but I think it's been disrupted incredibly by the pandemic. So if you think about all that we've changed and learned in remote work through the pandemic, so I think that there is a demographic shift that is happening that we're only just starting to really understand. I think I think the implications are going to be huge. So, you know, you could have people work for you that I, I mean, I I've hired people that I never even laid eyes on until two months after they were working with us. And, you know, that so the idea of remote work really opens a lot of possibilities, but for for some services. But when you look at our primary industries in Monterey County, being hospitality and ag, those, you know, you can't do that remotely. And, you know, if you and I want to go to lunch on Alvarado Street, you know, we need somebody to serve us and hopefully they can live close by. <laughs> and so so I think we even with the, a demographic shift and more possibilities for some remote work, we need to be very conscious of the the need to house our local workforce and knowing that our and that a large swath of that includes people that are earning lower wages and so being very intentional about housing policy and and looking at ways to create more affordable housing on the peninsula especially it's really a challenge um, for lots of reasons you know you're you're up against growth versus no growth conflict there's the the water issue which you know it is a real issue, but I think we need to rethink who we want to house and and what kind of community we want to live in. And uh, you know, if if we lived in a NIMBY world, not in my backyard, we would be you know at some point, as you said, there's going to be a threshold where you don't have a housekeeper or nobody's pumping your gas or right. <laughs> it's, or the restaurants can't find enough staff to keep serving you because people can't afford to live anywhere near here. So, so, you know, from, from a self-interest standpoint, you need to figure out how to, how to house your workforce. And, and really, you know, when going back to the theme of strong community, I, I think there's a lot to be said about 
housing people near their jobs and, and, and that creates community. If people are parachuting in from someplace else, it's hard to really build a community. And, and again, so whether they're telecommuting or, or having a long commute, it doesn't really strengthen what I think is the core fabric of a community where people, you know, you run into each other in the grocery store, you know, you see each other at the, at the 4th of July parade and that those are parts of, of keeping our, our community strong is that people are co-located. And so for us to really think thoughtfully and invest in opportunities to house people at all different income levels is, I think, really important to our community. Housing itself, of course, it's a big issue. And and we actually had to discuss it quite at length with our board to take it on as a priority because it's, you Mm. know, United Way is not going to build our way out of the housing (laughs) crisis, but we felt it was so important and drives the social determinants of health so much that we, you know, we, we can't ignore it. So, you know, we're, we're um, engaged in it in a, in a couple of ways, you know, on the peninsula, one of the strategies for expanding housing supply is the idea of, of granny units or having a secondary units on properties where um, people could either rent it out uh, for their, you know, for additional income as a smaller unit, it's it's by design going to be potentially more affordable. It also allows for multi-generational living. You might have your parents live there and then that creates, you know, again, a, a stronger community because you've got more social supports that are co-located. So, so accessory dwelling units are one of the initiatives that United Way is involved in to uh, really advocate for people to consider that as, as a way to enhance our housing stock and as well as quality of life. Yeah, that's uh, the, the ADUs and, and, and adding that, I think that's a, that's a great um, idea, not building these McMansions, but, <laughs> um, you know, smaller, smaller units that are, you know, cheaper, number one, cheaper to build, and also um, you know, more affordable to, to live in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I was reading that the, you know, kind of like goes back and forth, the regulatory nature of creating new units and the cost of building uh, more affordable units is pretty high from what I was, from what mm-hmm. I was looking at. And I don't know yeah. if that's just due to labor costs or permitting costs or a combination, but I, I can imagine that like, if you're, you know, you're building a 10 units, but they each, each of them cost like $500,000, it's going to be hard to, and those are affordable. Um, it's going to be very hard to rent them out or sell those and, have any incentive for developers to actually do it and make any sort of profit. So are there any initiative, any initiatives right now to help to decrease the cost or have some sort of tax credit to address that issue? So there are a lot of tax credit programs to, and, and there's a lot of nonprofit housing developers that, you know, their, their business model is based on using tax credits to help subsidize the cost of building. Labor costs are very expensive for a lot of reasons, as well as, um, you know, material costs. I don't know really what the answer is, quite honestly, because when you talk, and, and you're exactly right, when you talk about affordable housing units or, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a unit, 
that's you know how do you call that affordable um (laughs) i i don't know and in in our community you know if you look at you know specifically on the peninsula you've got um an older i think typically older housing stock and uh not a lot of multi-units uh i think you've got um and very high property values you know the real estate itself the land value is very high it, it is tricky, but you look at and you see what an impact it's making on things like education. So we go, circling back to education, you know, MP, Monterey Peninsula Unified School District has been seriously investigating building teacher housing as a as a strategy for them to be able to retain good teachers because it's really hard to do that because teachers can't afford to live here. So, you know, it, it comes full circle. I wish I had the answer. I think, you know, in general, what what I've come to see is that we need to think, we need to be more open to vertical building, to density in places that make sense. Thinking about, you know, walkable communities. I think our whole, the national uh, sentiment or certainly the the uh, American dream of, of more of like the suburban, you know, distance bedroom community, is you know maybe that's something of the of the past generation because when and it also I think it ties into other health issues too because it that what we've created is a very car dependent culture so if you think about what a change it would be if we could all be old school and you know walk to the market every day to get our fresh bread or or have a more walkable community where we are more actively engaged and not as dependent on cars to get out you know to drive to the gym why do you have to drive to the gym if you are walking daily or you know have access to more natural activities so you know, I'm just thinking. I'm I'm going back to old Europe at this point, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm so glad you you shared that honestly because that's that's a thought that I, that I often have where you know we have so many non-communicable diseases in this country that are just growing, 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 and a lot of it is from a lack of activity. It's just a yeah. it's a huge lack of activity, and so. Yeah, with these very like only drivable communities, there's no incentive, there's no built-in system where people just can subconsciously, oh yeah, I'm just gonna walk. It's not yeah, like it's not like old Europe. It's not like you know, we my wife and I we went to um, Europe two years ago now, and we were in Italy and we were in uh, Czech Republic, and everyone's just walking everywhere. I mean, yes, you know, there's like some. You, know, you do take the subway sometimes, but for the most part, and I lived in New York city too, people are walking, you know, like the city yeah. was built for that. And I, when right. I grew up in San Jose. It is so spread out geographically and there's no like central hub that it's hard to like the city planning with our, uh, I guess what, what, the uh, civil engine, like the civil engineering and like the city planning that goes into like building an actual like hub that is Talk about complex. I mean, it's right, <laughs> right. So I think a couple things. I mean, one, I think we should respectfully entertain the ideas. I know that um, city 
of Monterey Council is looking at, you know, how do you build up in the in the central core, you know, of, of downtown? How do you make more dense housing available for, for that purpose so that you have places where people can can live and work and and that you look at ways to make that instead of the fancy penthouse that's very exclusive, how do you make right. it more affordable? And then the other point I wanted to make is is kind of, you know, in the vein of silver linings of the pandemic. I know in my own neighborhood, you know, I've been getting out walking more with more intention than before. I have a dog that I didn't have before the pandemic and I've gotten to know my neighbors a whole lot better. And so there's definitely, you know, a a new appreciation for neighborhood in that way. And we don't, I don't have a commercial district I can walk to, but we're just, you know, we're out seeing each other with our daily walking routines. And, and there's something kind of nice and healthy about that, that um, we're not driving in and out and, and, and not really connecting in a personal way. So um, just that idea of, uh, of reflecting on, you know, the pandemic has made us more home focused and more dependent on you know, what we can do within a very small radius, but appreciating the the neighbors around us. So that's just something I wanted to, that I would hope, you know, post pandemic, that is a learning and a, an appreciation that stays with us. Absolutely. I mean, it has definitely brought out the uh, importance of community and social interaction. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Well, I know we're at, uh, we're at nine fifty nine. We could keep talking like for a lot. We have so many things, to, so many more of the world's issues to oh, yes. to tackle. Yes. We can't solve them all today, though. But thank you yeah. so much. This was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. And I want to give you the last word. Is there um, any like top opportunities that people can get involved with to um, to serve their local community with United Way? Well, we are. Uh, accepting nominations for Live United Awards. We have an annual volunteer recognition. And so um, through uh, the end of February, we have a a process for people to, if you visit our website, you can um, nominate a volunteer or an organization that has served uh, Monterey County in in 2020. And we would love to recognize those volunteers. So um, that is one, nominate for a Live United Award. We also are starting our free tax preparation program and we have volunteer and that's volunteer driven. And so we have volunteers who have trained and certified with the IRS to provide tax preparation. And uh, we are always looking for volunteers to help with that. You can also find that information on our website. And I guess in a one more thing that is has been the topic of the week. And that is, you know, we're all interested in vaccines, right? Um, there, in the next six months, there's going to be a lot of activity and hopefully opportunity for vaccine clinics to, you know, be stood up and and helping make our community safe. I gave the example of my mom helping out at at Montage, but um, there will be opportunities for people to step up and help with vaccine clinics. And um, the way to do that, both for clinical and non-clinical volunteers, you know, we're still looking at 
what are the points of entry? Right now, the health department is recruiting volunteers. I know some of the cities are going to be stepping up with their resources and, and their staff, but they're also going to be looking for volunteers. So I would just, you know, alert people to keep an eye open for those volunteer opportunities in a more formal way. And then informally, all of us, again, going back to that neighborhood, you know, make check in on your neighbor, make sure that they have what they need, or maybe they somebody needs help registering to, for a vaccine appointment. And so really just, you know, making sure you're looking out for one another, whether it's formally through an organization or informally through your own network. Great, great. Yeah, look out for your neighbor, be a good neighbor. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's great. Well, um, Katie, thanks so much for for uh, joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I learned a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward to tackling these these issues uh, with you and all the other good people out there working hard on on these. So, thanks again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. What is up, my strong people? I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Please go ahead and tag me in a tweet at Nathan Kadlicek. Send me an email to Nathan at CatalystPT.com. That's K-A-D as in dog, A-L-Y-S-T-P-T.com. Or send me a DM on Instagram at Dr. Kadlicek, Dr. Kadlicek. There will be plenty more episodes coming up in the future weeks and months, so make sure to turn on notifications so you can be the first to hear them. Thank you so much for listening. Let's keep working to solve these big issues in the world, and until next time, stay strong, be resilient, and grow. 